I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on August 3rd of 2014 under the headline, Tillamook Burn Blew Up With Shocking Speed. Here we go. Perhaps the most interesting part of the story of Oregon's Tillamook Burn of 1933 is not what happened, but what didn't happen. Three decades before the Tillamook Burn, the wildfire known as the Yakult Burn, really dozens of simultaneous fires all across Oregon and Washington, lit into the states with savage ferocity and blinding speed. It engulfed whole towns, destroyed sawmills, and chased frantic loggers out of doomed camps, and it chased down 35 people and burned them alive. On the great grim day of August 24, 1933, the Tillamook Fire moved with even greater speed, and there were thousands of people, firefighters and residents, at risk of fiery death as it raced down upon them. Yet although one firefighter was killed by a falling tree, not a single person was burned to death in the 1933 blaze. According to historian Stuart Holbrook, who was there that day, these survivors have Lynn Cronmiller, the chief forester for the Oregon Department of Forestry, to thank for this. On the morning of Thursday, August 24, 1933, Oregon wildland firefighters weren't unduly concerned about the large forest fire that was eating into Tillamook and Clatsop counties from the east. It was a big, hairy forest fire, but nothing too out of the ordinary for that time of year. They hoped to contain it within the next day or two at 40,000 acres. A big burn, sure, but yeah, all in a day's work. By noon, everything had changed, and everyone knew they were dealing with something completely new. With a half-million-acre fiery monster that would leave its scars on the state for the next hundred years. Already it had a name, the Tillamook Burn. For many people on the fire lines, the first word of what was to come was a phone call. It was Miller, and he wanted everybody off the fire lines on the west side of the burn immediately. Then Miller sent drivers racing out through the back roads in the coast range west of the fire with orders to get the word to every rancher, woodsman, and hiker in the area, out, now. Their belongings hurriedly stuffed into automobiles and trucks, the residents obeyed, and as they hastened to safety through the thickening smoke, they found themselves racing with herds of wildlife, deer and elk, galloping along the roadway where the going was easiest, heedless of the danger of hunters. Miller that morning had seen the signs, and he knew what they meant. Humidity at 26%, almost a record low for the region at daybreak. Little puffs of hot wind coming out of the east and gaining strength as the day continued bringing air fresh from the sun-baked plains of central Oregon. And a big, out-of-control forest fire still burning in the crowns of 63 square miles of big old-growth fir trees. The conditions were perfect for a worst-case scenario, what wildland firefighters call a blow-up. And if that happened, the fire would move much faster than a fire crew could run or even drive. There were by now 3,000 men battling the fire, and most of them were in its path, trying to stop its progress by digging and cutting fire lines. Hundreds, maybe thousands of them, would die horribly if they didn't get out. It happened just a little later that morning. 
50 miles away in Portland, residents soon were gawking at the massive mushroom-shaped cloud that hung towering over the valley to the east, two miles high and dozens of miles wide. Beneath that cloud, hurricane-strength winds howled, driven by the intense heat of hundreds of thousands of acres of burning old-growth firs. Whole burning limbs and treetops soared into the sky and were blown toward the sea, where they rained down on beachside communities and even fishing boats. The men weren't able to do much more than just stay a safe distance away. By that night, the fire was burning more than 270,000 acres and looked to be unstoppable. But a little later, the hot east wind died down and was replaced with a moist breeze off the ocean and a fog bank. And with the help of this cloud of moisture, firefighters finally were able to slow the fire's race to the sea and contain it behind fire lines and bring the fire down out of the crowns of the trees. After that day, the fire settled to a slow crawl toward the sea, and firefighters managed to keep it out of the crowns until it was finally stopped for good by the early onset of the fall rains a week or two later. The Great Fire hadn't destroyed the trees. It had merely killed them, leaving them standing as massive snags that every summer got drier and more flammable. Knowing what it meant to have a quarter million acres of kindling sticking up in the air, property owners hastened to get salvage logging underway. But there were a lot of these trees, and the lumber market could only handle so many logs at once. Every fire season came with a fresh set of fears for Oregon foresters. Conditions came up snake eyes in 1939, six years later, when another careless logging operation restarted the burn in nearly the same spot as before. By the, by the time this fresh outbreak was done, it had ravaged more than 200,000 acres, mostly among the well-seasoned firewood of the previous burn, although 19,000 acres of fresh green timber was burned over as well. It happened again in 1945, six years after that. Two fires covering 182,000 acres, one of them possibly started by a Japanese balloon bomb. People started talking about a six-year jinx, and indeed 1951 brought with it another fire. But by comparison with the earlier ones, this one was puny at 32,000 acres, and it was the last one. At least a part of the reason the 1951 fire was the last one was the realization of a key insight that the fresh fires had made abundantly clear the forests would have to be replanted. A single forest fire leaves seed cones behind ready to sprout and grow a new forest, but hit that same area with a second fire six years later and you're left with a charred wasteland. It's a bit like reseeding your lawn in July and then forgetting to water it for a week. So in 1949, the state government launched a program to plant more than 72 million new trees in the ravaged landscape. By this time, most of the burned-over lands had cheated to the government for unpaid property taxes. In their podcast about the burn, Andy Lindbergh and Doug Kent Crispin take the provocative position that except for the death and injuries resulting from it, the Tillamook burn was, on balance, a good thing. They may be right about that. As a result of the fire, vast tracts of privately owned forest became public lands, part of what today is the Tillamook State Forest. And further, the experience of reseeding those lands and the examples of what happened when they were not reseeded inspired many of the modern forestry laws and logging practices that protect us from similar catastrophes today. Catastrophes that, because of the state's higher population density today, would undoubtedly come with a considerably higher body count. Key sources in this story included works by Stuart Holbrook, Doug Decker, Doug Kent Crispin, and Andy Lindbergh. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. 
What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatorgan.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatorgan.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶